Good to see everybody. So uh, I just want to pray for Mark as he gets started here, and uh, we just thank him. We've had him here before. Many of you are familiar with his ministry. And uh, so one thing that fascinates me about Mark is not only that he has this powerfully powerful, uh, I'd say pedigree, if you could say it that way, just history, we could say it, of prophetic ministry all over the earth, and uh, which is something we really, really appreciate in our church, uh, anything that has to do with prophetic, you know. If I say we're going to have a prophetic meeting, 5,000 people show up, right? If I say we're going to have a teaching meeting, three people show up, you know. But anyway, <clears throat> so uh, that's kind of how we're wired, right? Because the bottom line is we just want to hear God's voice, right? We want to just know what God wants to do in our life, and, and God uses these prophetic people to do it. And one thing that's very interesting, though, that, and we've been talking, we, we've been doing this through the years, but today was especially meaningful to me, is that... Um, Actually, we have a, a, he belongs to a church in San Diego, right? San Diego County. And uh, it's so parallel to us in so many ways in terms of values. And we were just talking about his, the, the, the steps they've been taking with their school, which are, it's amazing. So every time I talk to him, we're doing similar things. So we have like this sister church down in San Diego area. And uh, what city is it exactly? El Cajon, East County. El Cajon, yes. So we, most of us know where that is. So. Uh, I just want to pray for him and bless him as he ministers to us today. Lord, we just thank you for Mark. We just thank you for the blessing that he's been to us in the past. And we just bless him today. I pray, God, whatever he has to say would just be so important to us individually and corporately. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. Is everybody alive? I just want to, uh, I don't know where the couple's sitting that uh, they prayed over who started the school, but uh, my hat goes off to you. In my home church, we started a school 1 through 12 uh, 20, 25 years ago. <clears throat> and we are, <clears throat> our church is just on a mission to get kids out of the public school because, as we know, our, uh, hopefully that'll change when revival comes. But right now, we've got people who are preying upon our kids, not P-R-A-Y. Uh, and we are so committed to getting kids into a godly education. Our church is actively helping other churches in San Diego start churches. In fact, I was telling Mike, we are uh, one church we've helped start that's starting a school this year. We are paying the salary of the principal of that school for the first year. We're just so committed to it. So hats off to you guys for doing that, among all the other things you do. I want to jump right into the message. And uh, uh, it's a little bit funny that uh, sometimes I give a message and do a little bit of ministry, and people sit down, and right, the meeting's over. I sit down, people come and say, well, I thought you were a prophet. I said, well, why do you say that? I said, well, you didn't prophesy over people. I said, no, I did. <laughs> that... Uh, what we're used to is prophetic words, but what the body of Christ really needs today is the word of the Lord, not just words. And uh, <clears throat> we live, you know, it goes without saying, we live in a day and age when there's such a brokenness in society, broken souls, loneliness, isolation. And I want to uh, break something down to you that I feel is vitally important. I've given this message um, Oh, I don't know, five or six times around the world uh, as, as the Lord has led me to do it, but I, I felt in praying to do it today to talk about uh, God's covenant. And I know that's one of those theological words that your eyes just kind of glazed over when I said that. But I want, I want to break it down. And uh, I believe a healthy church, uh, if you think about the four walls of a traditional church, there's... Those four walls represent four things. First of all, presence. And uh, that's one of the things I love about your pastor. You know, he just loves and seeks and is just completely enamored with the presence of God. And, and uh, even as we were praying before the service began, he reminded me of uh, the prayer Moses prayed. He said, Lord, uh, if your presence is not going to go with us, we're not going because it's your presence that alone distinguishes us from all the peoples of the face of the earth. And a church that's focused on the presence of the Lord, it's not just the presence, but that involves ministry, praying for the sick, it involves prophecy, it involves worship, and all of that. 
The second wall is what I would call a wall of discipleship, because how many of you know we can't just have experiences, but we need our minds renewed if we're going to walk long-term in the ways of God. So that's teaching and preaching, training, whatnot. The third is the mission, and uh, not only what you're doing with the school, but just right out there, the huge mission you have to the homeless, and beyond that, what Mike does, and so some of you are involved in their side of the world. But the fourth aspect is so completely vital as well, and that is community. We live in such a fractured, broken society today, and unfortunately, California, with all the glamour, all the good weather, all the, you know, the cool stuff happening, we are such an isolated, lonely people. And God is a God of covenant. It's a covenant of community, and I want to break that down to you a little bit. Psalm 25, verse 14, it says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. There is that word. It's the ways of God, but it's not just the ways of God. It's being in a vital, as we're going to talk about, blood covenant relationship with God. I'm going to break that down a little bit, what it means. But, you know, the premier message of the Gospels is not church life, it's the kingdom of God. Over 70 times the phrase, the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. And that's what John the Baptist preached, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached it, the 12 preached it, the 70, when they were sent out, they preached it. And one of the the big distinguishing marks I see in churches is churches that are kind of heaven-focused or churches that are kingdom-focused. Because when you're kingdom-focused, you do things like start schools. You do things like praying for the sick. You do things like ministering to the poor because you believe God wants to invade this realm of of the impossible with all of his possibilities to change lives. And so it's, a, it's a, a covenant of the kingdom, and his kingdom is life-changing, it is healing, but it has to do with the king and his ways. And so again, it says, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. But you cannot really understand the kingdom of God if you don't understand the covenant. The two go hand in hand. I'm going to say this once, and I'm usually good for saying this once in a message, and then I get it mixed up after that. So if you need it repeated, you'll have to buy the the message, I don't know, or download it. But the covenant is the constitution of the kingdom, but the kingdom is the administration of the covenant. Wow, you look so excited. I saw those eyes just completely glazed over. Let me try it one more time. The covenant, this holy agreement that we're going to talk about with God, this blood covenant relationship, is the constitution of the kingdom. And the kingdom is the administration of the covenant. We live in a day and age where in past generations in our country, people thought our constitution was irrevocable unchangeable, but now people talk about a living constitution, that everything's flexible because we're headed more and more to a secular humanistic society where there are no absolutes. That'll be reversed as revival comes. But having said that, fear of you are excited, praise God. (laughs) I'm with the right church. (laughs) But having said that, We need to understand that God is a God of covenant. He's a God of absolute standards and ways that he invites us into by the blood of the Lamb. His his covenant is the irrevocable and absolute promises of his care and his love for you. The care and love for you is released into your life is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And as an example of a covenantal promise, we could think of three times in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Three times Jesus said, do not be afraid, do not be anxious. We would say, do not be stressed out. He said that three times. It was not a suggestion. It was a directive word. You know, neurologists will tell us that over 80, possibly 85% of all people in hospitals because of long-term disease, the roots of it is fear, worry, and anxiety. 
and that is certainly the growing standard in society today. But uh, Jesus said those three times, do not be afraid, do not be anxious, do not be worried, because your Heavenly Father knows your needs even before you ask. And he said that because when you give your life to Jesus because of the blood of the Lamb, Jesus' sacrifice, you come into a blood covenant relationship with God. So what is a blood covenant relationship? Thank you for asking. I'm glad you're, you're into this. If you've got your Bible, turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, Abraham, who's really the father of not only Jewish people, but Christianity, the spiritual father figure. But uh, he was called by God, he and his wife Sarah, and all everything they had to go on this journey, a place they'd never been before, ways they had not gone before. And in verse 1 of Genesis 15, the Lord came to Abraham in a vision said, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward should be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is my nephew. But Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household would be my heir. But behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. Now you need to understand, at this point in time, Abraham is in his uh, 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 90s, late 90s. Sarah's in her 90s as well. They've never had children. They've prospered in every which way. Uh, the promises of God have been fulfilled. They've grown wealthy. They're very powerful, have a lot of prestige. They have their own private army, everything you think of. But they've never realized the promise of God, that they would have descendants of themselves. But the Lord said to them, This man shall not be your heir. And he brought him outside and said to him, verse 5, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. And then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans, from Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. And then he said, O Lord God, how shall I know that I shall possess it? And we read for the first time a blood covenant being instituted. He said, bring me certain animals, a heifer, a female, a goat, a ram, a turtle. And he said, bring them and sacrifice them. And we don't really understand a blood covenant because it's something that was done in ancient times, particularly between two kings or leaders. That, uh, you know, let's say that, you know, you all live in the, uh, where are we at? Empire of Laguna Niguel. And then there's the empire of Laguna Beach, but then there's the really evil empire of San Clemente. <laughs> and, you know, the people in Laguna Beach and the people in uh, your community, you know, just kind of enjoying life. But in San Clemente, they're on a mission to take over the world. So sometimes they'll attack Laguna Beach, sometimes they'll attack you trying to take over everything. Sorry if you live in Laguna Beach. You know, I don't know if, if Ed and Janet are here, but it's just a, just a picture. But uh, so the, the king of San Clemente, he's got this huge, huge army, bigger than your army, bigger than the one Laguna Beach. So the king of Laguna Beach and the king of your area, they come together and they would make a covenant. And what they would do is actually what God had Abraham do, sacrifice these animals. And obviously in those days, animals were very, very valuable, not only for the work they could do, like oxen and things like that, but what they represented financially and food was. But they would take those animals they sacrificed, and they would put them in a rather large area in a field or dirt, and the two kings or leaders would walk in the midst of those sacrificed animals, and they would make a blood covenant with one another, and they would say, may it be done to me what was done to these animals if I do not come and support you of your hour of need. So if you all made a blood covenant with the king or, uh, or government of Laguna Beach, then when San Clemente came up and attacked you, you would come to each other's aid. It was considered uh, sacred. It was considered life and death. And that's why they would sacrifice the animals as a picture of what should happen 
if that was not fulfilled. We think about the road of Calvary that, uh, you know, Jesus, first of all, he was beaten, and uh, then the crown of thorns that pierced his scalp. He was whipped, and actually, when you read about that from a historical basis, a lot of people did not survive the whipping uh, because there was just such a loss of blood that those uh, strands came off the whip. There were nine of them, and they had pieces of metal, sharp pieces of metal embedded at the edge of the whip. A lot of people had such a loss of blood, they never had a chance of uh, carrying the cross beam of the cross. And uh, they just go into shock and die. But then, like Jesus, uh, he survived that, obviously, and he carried the cross beam. No one carried the full cross. It was too heavy, but they would carry the cross beam. And Jesus carried it for a while. Then, as usually would happen, he grew, he grew too, uh, from loss of blood, too weak, and someone they grabbed someone to take over. But then they take him up that road of Golgotha. It was a dirt road. And obviously then they'd be crucified. But if you could look at that dirt road, it was actually a winding road up the mountain, you would just see two things, dirt and blood, dirt and blood, dirt and blood. And actually we could talk about when uh, King David brought in the glory of God into the city of, of David that we call Jerusalem today, that he sacrificed something like 2,500 oxen on that road. It was a road of dirt and blood, dirt and blood. It's a picture of this covenant of life and death that God has with us. It's the picture of the cross. But it's also a covenant, not just of blood, but it's a covenant of hospitality. The word hospitality is an interesting word. It's where we get hospitals from that care for the sick, care for the hurting, obviously. And the word hospice, you know, taking in care people, caring for people. But we also understand the word hospitality is getting together and sharing life together, eating together, caring for one another. And I want to ask you if you go just a few chapters from Genesis 15 to Genesis 18. A short period of time, a year or two has gone by from Genesis 15. And still, Abraham and Sarah have not had any children. And it's appearing like an impossibility. Because again, both Abraham and Sarah were in their 90s. And it says in Genesis 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of them, in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed down to the earth. Oftentimes, when God manifests his presence, it would come in different ways. But here, he's manifesting himself in the form of three men, which I think was symbolic of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, he ran after the Prince of the Lord. There's a whole uh, series of messages there we could pursue. But he said to the Lord, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass your servant by. And he said, Come back with me. Let a little water be brought, and I'll wash your feet like a lowly servant. That's something if you entered into a wealthy person's house, they would have a servant wash your feet when you entered in. And he said, Well, I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that that you may pass on. And so the Lord turned around and went back uh, with Abraham to his tent. And it says in verse 6, Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, prepare uh, three cakes, uh, and make some cakes, prepare this meal. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man to prepare it quickly. And he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before him. And they ministered to the presence of the Lord. They actually exercised the gift of hospitality. And it was at that point, that meeting with the Lord, after the Lord had ate. This was not a fast food McDonald's uh, church service that went on. This was quite an ordeal. They took a choice calf. It was very expensive. And Sarah went, took some time here. They baked this bread and they ministered to the presence of the Lord. And it was at that point when the Lord departed that he said, by the way, at this time next year, when I return, you'll have had the child of promise. 
that promise they entered into it prophetically at this point in time at that place of hospitality. My wife and I grew up for the most part in Southern California, like many of you, you know, when we're just typical Southern Californians culturally and whatnot, and then got saved, and of course that changes everything. But we began our international prophetic ministry in 1982. I, I started when I was five years old. <laughs> and uh, at first I began to uh, travel uh, a lot doing churches and conferences and seminars in North American places, but then I began to start doing quite a bit as well in Europe, England, and Asian places like this. And my eyes were open to a whole different perspective of what it means to entertain people, to exercise the gift of hospitality. Because in California, you know, we think about, you know, a, a big night out is going to in and out, you know. Uh, obviously, that's uh, shortchanging a little bit, but it's not that far off. But in Europe, when you go to someone's house for a meal, you're there for hours. They don't rush through it. It's not an event just to be accomplished, but it's a time of sharing life. And particularly in places like France and Germany and Italy and things like that, a meal is not a meal. It's not just to get nourishment. It's not just to get the time by, but you take quite a bit of time. I remember uh, one time I was uh, ministering at a conference in Karlsruhe, Germany, which is quite close to the French border, and some people who lived in Germany attended that church, but they were French. They said, we want to take you to a special restaurant. And so they took me to this place uh, across the border in France. And it's an old, old, small uh, inn that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years that is actually a five Michelin five-star place. And from time to time, the, the president or different leaders in France will take visiting dignitaries there. And it was a seven-course meal. From the time we got in, it was three and a half hours to the time we got out. And just the care, I mean, each meal, even the appetizer itself, you're already full from that. And you needed to sit there and hang out and fellowship and share life just so you could work up an appetite for the next course, you know. <laughs> but a whole different way of life. And then my wife and I ended up moving from San Diego to Toronto. And a year and a half later, we had the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our church. And we began to have the whole world visiting our church. Uh, we had literally between four and five million people come through the doors of our church during a six-year period, five-year period maybe. And uh, I'd get calls from pastors from Africa, from Europe, uh, that I'd stayed in their houses when I'd been doing conferences there, saying we're, we're coming to Toronto for the meetings, the outpouring. And I'd say, great, you know, you hear, uh, I think God will really meet with you, you know. And uh, they say, well, we've got enough money for the airline ticket, but uh, we don't have enough money for hotel rooms. I say, well, you need to pray a little bit more, don't you? <laughs> we ended up literally nonstop for over 18 months, the first 18 months of the outpouring, have guests staying with us. It was the strangest thing. We changed houses about a year after we'd been there a year. We rented a bigger house. And we didn't know why we rented this house. Literally, it had six bedrooms. And we only had two kids at the time. But we just we felt led by the Lord to rent this place. And then all of a sudden, the whole nation, you know, the whole world is coming to our church. And sometimes we'd have two or three different parties staying there. But literally, we went through a year and a half. My wife is such a saint. She was even pregnant during that time. We've got people staying with us, cooking them meals and things. But... There was the whole art to uh, understanding this ministry, this gift of hospitality, and it's sharing life together. And I mentioned the four corners of the four walls of a healthy church, celebrating, walking in the presence of God, ministering the presence of God, discipleship, our minds being renewed according to the ways and the word of God, our mission to reach out the gospel, even to the nations. But community, it is sacred to the Lord. I want to uh, read to you something many of you are familiar with. It's, uh, it's what's called the uh, Shema in, in Hebrew, and it's considered the most sacred passage to the Hebrew people of all what we call the Old Testament. They call it the Bible. 
It's just central to everything. And it's the words that uh, Moses said in Deuteronomy 6.55. The first part it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And there's more that goes to it, but that's the heart of it that the other part of it flows out of. And so you fast forward from that to the time of Jesus. Jesus was answered by a, um, a young man. He said, you know, a young leader, what, what is the great commandment? And, of course, he, he quotes the Shema. He said, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. But the interesting thing is, Jesus did not stop there. He added something to it, or rather he paraphrased and brought a lot into it. And he said, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Christianity was never intended by God to be kind of a lone ranger sort of thing that, you know, you do your life, I'll do mine, and we'll come together for our church services, you know, Sunday mornings or Monday nights, and we'll bless one another and pray for one another. No, it, much, much more than that. It was a life that God created us for the one another's to share, to be part of one another's lives. And, you know, especially when I started doing a lot of ministry about 15, 20 years ago in Asia, even beyond in Europe, there's a whole nother art to hospitality, sitting and sharing life together, dining together. And we think about, well, we eat because we need nutrition. But we think about what Jesus said, even as we just uh, celebrated and took part in communion, that Jesus gave the instructions, do this in remembrance of me. In John chapter 6, Jesus began to speak a message that nobody could understand. His, the largest group of his followers stopped following him. Even the larger group of disciples stopped following him. He even asked the 12, are you going to leave me too? Because he began to say these very strange words, you're going to have to eat of my body and drink of my blood. And no one could put that into perspective. But it was the most graphic illustration the Lord could give that he wants to be so much a part of your life, sharing life with you, that it's like he's like the very food. In fact, he's called the bread of life that you take in. And scientists tell us that uh, at least once during a seven-year period, every single cell in your body is renewed. You, you, you become what you eat. There's a couple of messages there we won't go into. <laughs> but we think about having a good meal or once in a while getting together for friends, you know, and things like that. No, the heart of Christianity community is not just serving together and worshiping together, singing together, lifting hands, but it's sharing life together, getting involved in one another's life. The early days of the church in Jerusalem, it says regularly they met from house to house. But when they talked about communion, when you read about the instructions Paul gave, we understand it was not just taking together of the elements, as we say, but they would share meals together. My wife and I, our family, was definitely changed by spending so much time, my wife and I, in Europe, ministering in Asia. And we've got a, a whole art now of hospitality that we try to practice regularly and grow in. And so regularly we invite people over to our, our house for dinner, and uh, I've got an amazing, I'm quite a good chef. If you don't believe me, just ask me and I'll tell you. My specialty <laughs> is Italian food. <laughs> uh, but anyway, when we invite people for dinner, we invite them to come uh, not about 10 minutes for the meal served, but about an hour and a half, because I've also got this great gift of delegating. I say, now you chop this, you work on this, and we're all going to, and you know, uh, how can I put this without offending people in our church? We celebrate communion when we're, oh, well, never mind, forget that. As we're <laughs> partaking of the elements, as we're cooking the food, we share life together. We get everybody involved. And so usually by the time dinner is served, we've already had like an hour and a half, sometimes two hours of fellowship. And, you know, we talk about anything and everything. We have light 
lighthearted conversations, but we also talk about stresses, trials. We're going through what's happening with our families, what is God saying to the church today. But it, everything's on the table, so to speak. And then we have the food together. And there's life that's shared in that. You know, the... Uh, let me see if I can find his my notes here. The, uh, the young man that many of you remember, I think it was early last year in Michigan, Ethan Crumbley, that he'd been given that gun just a, a week or two before by his parents, and he took that gun and shot all those fellow students at school. We think about how in the world could somebody be that demonically messed up that they would go and do something like that? How could somebody be that crazy? But as the news has come out of the household Ethan was raised in, his parents were never there. Even as a child, they would go out almost five, six nights a week and get drunk with friends and just leave him. And drugs and everything else. He, li he grew up in a and a lifestyle of just almost complete isolation. We go all the way back to the 90s, Columbine High School in uh, Colorado. <clears throat> Those two guys that, you know, kind of uh, opened a Pandora's box and shot all their fellow students there. They were bullied. They were outcast that nobody took them in. There's a saying about church life that the church growth people use that people will come to a church for a multitude of reasons. They will come there because maybe there's a renowned preacher. They will come there because maybe the worship band, you know, is a best-selling uh, worship band team, you know, and all of that. Uh, they will come there maybe because of the discipleship programs or this or that. But they say inevitably when a person leaves a church, almost always they leave for one essential reason, lack of relationship lack of relationship. See, in, especially in the American culture, North American culture, uh, compared to like Asian culture or Europe, European culture or African culture, South American culture, we're a very isolated people. You know, it was the, the American poet, I think Robert Frost, that said most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And it was added later on to that, and their songs remain unsung. The times of getting together and sharing life, not just, you know, let's rub shoulders for half an hour or 45 minutes at this restaurant, but sharing life. Because eating food, again, getting back to the illustration Jesus gave us of the supper, you know, of taking the elements, we all need food. You can't live without food. It's something very basic. But what we saw modeled in the early, early days, the days of the early church was coming together and sharing life spiritually as well as do, just doing something necessary. There is life in that. And we can look at a number of things there, even in the Old, uh, Old Testament, that Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11, says, Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, and the 70 of the elders of Israel, they went up the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. They saw God himself. And there under his feet, as it were, was a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven of, of, clear, of clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and they drank. Because at that time, you know, you know the story of bringing the ark. One of David's men touched and he died instantly. But here, these 70 elders, they saw the Lord in just an amazing way. And it says he did not strike them down. But what I want to draw your attention to, it says they ate and they drank in the presence of the Lord. And there, referring back to what I said in Genesis 18, you know, later on, you know, uh, well, I don't have time for anything. Let me, let me hurry up here. But we think about when David brought the Ark of God's glory in. It had been captured years ago. He brought it in after a lot of adventure, you know. And uh, it says David prepared a meal. They served bread and cakes, and they gave a meal to everybody as they, the glory of God, the Ark, was brought into the resting place David had prepared for it. And there is life to be had in God 
that cannot be experienced apart from vital relationship. I am what you could call a extroverted introvert. <laughs> now, we understand the essential differences between extrovert and introverts. Extroverts get their energy by times with just one or two people by themselves, where extroverts draw energy from being with the crowd. I have changed over the years, despite the fact that in my high school years, my father's in the military, we moved nine times during the school years, and I can remember in two of those moves during the middle of the school year, getting in fist fights and all sorts of things. So I grew up very much uh, an introvert, but I've learned over the years to just draw life and encouragement. You know, uh, uh, my relationship with your church, with Mike and everybody, began about... Uh, what was it, three and a half years ago, Bruce? Bruce had heard about my ministry, and he uh, did something really risky. He called me up and said, can we get together? So Bruce drove down to San Diego. We had a lunch together and hung out together, and then Bruce invited me to come up and minister here. And uh, with uh, Bruce and uh, uh, you know other people as well, uh, with the Jonoviches, you know, and Brenda, Bruce's wife, and Mike and his wife, I've, I've had so much great fun and meals together. And uh, Richard has become one of my close motorcycle riding buddies, and uh, we tend to ride very aggressively. We've had a revelation that when you're in the mountains approaching the curves, those signs that say 25 miles per hour, those were put there for cars, not motorcycles. <laughs> Unfortunately, not all police have had that revelation, but <laughs> that's another story. But, you know, even last night, you know, um, uh, the Jonoviches and uh, Bruce and Brenda, we had this incredible meal, and the food was amazing. And by the way, if you're curious, I like my steaks medium. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, it, it wasn't just the meal, although Bruce and Brenda prepared an incredible meal. It was sharing life together, praying together, talking together about the stresses of life, the ordeals of life, the challenges of life, but also the victories of life, that in the presence of God, each of us filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, sharing life, it's kingdom, it's kingdom activity. And that's where so much of what God wants to do in your life, you'll find fulfillment in. So Jesus, in this new covenant... Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, verse 5, he gave a parable, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight, say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for another friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. I and the kids have gone to sleep, you know. But he said, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything but as his friend, yet because of his impudence, meaning keep knocking, asking, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, he's talking there about a very important uh, understanding of prayer, being persistent in prayer, even when there's a delayed answer to prayer. But he's also talking about friends give hospitality to friends. And again, we think of that Last Supper. Jesus and the disciples, he said to them, I have longed to have this meal with you. You know, partly he was saying that because he was soon going to be going back to the Father, but also he wanted to illustrate something to him. And he took the bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance for me. And the same with the wine, the, the wine which was symbolic of the blood of the covenant. And again, in the early days church, they met from house to house. And yes, they did look at the word as it was in those days, the Old Testament, the Psalms and the writings, the Torah and all of that. Yes, they did pray together. Yes, they worshiped together. But they had meals together. Now, not all home groups can do that. But where my wife and I used to live in Dayton, Ohio, we had the absolutely coolest home group of all time. <laughs> we, now, don't take this the wrong way, but we handpicked who to invite. <laughs> It was a closed group. And we invited people who were good friends of ours, but also were, some people might call them food snobs, but I just say they had discernment culturally. <laughs> In fact, one of the couples, the guy was a professional chef, but almost all of us loved to cook, you know. And so we would meet twice a month. And what we did was 
Uh, we would always meet in my wife and my house, but a different couple each time would prepare a meal for that event. They'd bring the food, we'd heat it up, and we would spend the first 90 minutes just eating and socializing and talking about life. And then when everything was, you know, the tables were clear, we'd go into the living room, we'd spend 90 minutes sharing about what was going on and praying for one another and worshiping the Lord. I tell you, it was the coolest home group, you know, and especially when that professional chef, when he cooked, I, I miss it. But we're called to get involved with one another. And I would like to even challenge you how you determine success in your life. You know, Jesus said, what does it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world, lose your soul? So many Christians, if they get that coveted promotion or they get that covenant stock options or whatever it is to say, oh, this is the blessings of God. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's become a curse because it's required that you give your life blood in such a way that you don't have the time and the energy and the wherewithal. I mean, we talk about children that grow up never knowing their father or mother because they're just focused on their career. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad he's talking about the church that meets down the road. <laughs> but it's not just giving ourselves to our children and our marriages, but it's also taking time to invest in one another. You know, the Apostle Paul, he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 17, from now on, therefore, we are to regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. By flesh, meaning outward appearance, stature, notoriety, that sort of thing. He continued verse 17 by saying, Therefore, if anyone, say anyone, if anyone, doesn't matter how attractive or unattractive they may be, doesn't matter how much wealth or how much poverty they may have. It doesn't matter how cool they may be or not be. But if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new have come. And I want to give you a challenge today among another challenge, and that is that let's be a people that we ask God to give us the grace to see one another as he sees us. Yeah. You see, it's it, kind of like, you know, when Jesus really began to emerge in his ministry, his call, he said, well, this is just, G, you know, jo Jesus, Joseph the carpenter's son. We look upon one another according to the outward things, according to the cultural standards, how much money do they make, how, you know, this or that, you know. But that's not how God sees us. God sees us as his sons or daughters. And I want to particularly say that's still true of people who have maybe been Christians for 30 years, but have had setback after setback after setback after setback. You see, we look at someone and say, well, yeah, they kind of love God, and for sure God loves them, but they've been an on and off again alcoholic all these years. But I tell you, breakthroughs can come no matter how late in the game. Because even though we give up on one another sometimes and we even give up on ourselves, the promise of God is he is faithful. He will complete the good work that's begin within us. And I, I believe we need to ask God for a grace to see one another with the eyes of the Spirit. Peter said in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. How much more is that true today than Peter's day? The end of all things at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, say with me, above all. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all? Yeah, above all. You see, Jesus never said, they will know you are my disciples by your great prophetic revelation. He never said, they will know you are my disciples by the miracle signs and wonders 
You move in. Now, I've, been, I've spent 40 years training in people and knowing the voice of God. I love authentic revelation. I've also spent the last 30, 40 years training people how to move in healing and miracles. I love authentic miracles. I love the testimony of the compassion of God, the freedom people can walk in. But Jesus did not say, they will know you are my disciples by these things. He said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another, getting involved, serving one another. And so Paul said, above all, above everything, stay fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. And so it's not just getting together with people that are successful, but it's getting together with people that are struggling and maybe have had years of struggling, even as a Christian. And so we're called, as, as Peter continued, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9 says, show hospitality to one another. Do you know why so many people get set free from alcohol and fall back into alcohol, get set free from drugs and fall back into it, get free for a season of depression and fall back into depression? It's because of loneliness. It's because of isolation. And we say, well, be filled with the Spirit. Well, that's a huge part of it. But a huge way in which the Holy Spirit moves is in the one another's. That's why Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. It's the loving one another's. Well, what about that problem person? Turn to the person next to you say, he's talking about you now. What about that problem person? Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother and my brother sin against me and I must forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said in Matthew 8, 21, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. That's a, that's a number so high you get, you know, you got a little iPad making a checklist. You get tired of doing it, you know. Jesus even said in the two of the Gospels, if you do not forgive those who have sinned against you, neither will their Heavenly Father forgive you. You see, the rubber meets the road in this thing we call Christianity in love. Faith is so important. Faith can move mountains. Hope is important and allows us to go the distance. But love, God is love. And in the kingdom of God, love is never a noun. It's a verb. It's life shared together so I love preaching and teaching about miracles but I think one of the greatest miracles we can experience in the body of Christ is by the grace of God loving someone even when they fail us about five of you are excited I'm glad (laughs) but this is uh, what we're talking about it's the covenant it's what we could call the blood covenant of hospitality. And think about this for a moment. Even your very body is hosting the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God. Hmm. Are you still alive? So I want to issue you a challenge, and as I've prayed about this uh, privilege of being with you this morning and tomorrow night, uh, I want to issue you a challenge to, and I, I know all of us are busy. I mean, my wife and I, our, our lifestyle is just because of traveling internationally so much, and you know, and now we've got my second daughter, the second daughter's wedding coming up in a few months, and it's going to be at our house, and we get to get that all ready again. And guess what? We had it ready for our oldest daughter's wedding two years ago, but our whole yard just got torn up because of renovation. Thank you. <laughs> Someone wasn't thinking that one through. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I realize we we're, we're all feel stressed out. We all feel short on time, and time is one of the greatest commodities, the greatest things God entrusts us with. But maybe we can, should consider going before God and saying, God, because of what our society is facing today, isolation, you know, As much of a blessing and a tool as the Internet has become, it's also become a curse because so many people, you know, just because you have 5,000 friends on Facebook 
That doesn't mean they're going to be there when push comes to shove in your life, does it? It's, it's very plastic at best. You know, everybody loves you when you're looking cool on Instagram. But what about when, you're, when you need somebody, you need help? And so I want to challenge you as a church that in, in praying about being with you, praying about what I should share, and I'm not saying you don't have great relationships already. From what I've seen from my relationship with some of the leaders of this church, it's, you know, you're a very loving, kind people. But I want to challenge you that in the harvest God wants to bring into this church, you're going to have a lot of broken, lonely people. And there's a saying about coming out of the world and coming into life in church. It's not first behave then belong, but it's find a place of belonging, and that will lead to the change in the behavior. Amen. Because God is going to bring you a lot of hurting, broken people, even more than you've seen in the past. And where the rubber will meet the road from them going from making a decision for Christ to becoming disciples of Christ, it's not just going to be the preaching and teaching you do, but it's going to be this gift of hospitality rising up among you. And, um, you know, I, I just had five minutes with, with Mike, your pastor, before the service began. He told me a little bit about what your plans are. But, Mike, I, I, during worship, the Lord said to me, I, I saw, it's funny, um, I saw a broad, broad meadow with a broad river right going right through that river uh, meta going to the future and I felt like the Lord said this about you and uh, not just about you and your your wife I see her there but uh, <laughs> you're talking during the message <laughs> it's, I understand it's a long habit you know <laughs> I have a gift for embarrassing people it's not, I don't even have to work at it, it just comes naturally but not just about you and your family, Mike, but in what God has given you over the next few years to lead the church in. As David sang to the Lord, the Lord has brought me into a broad place, meaning not a tight place of being confined, but a broad place of blessing. And um, I almost never say this over churches, uh, or I should say the Holy Spirit has almost never had me, maybe on few occasions in 40 years save the churches, but you're not going to have a lack of finances for what God is calling you to do in these plans ahead, and you're going to be in a broad place. I didn't find this out till about six years ago, but back in the 95, I did a conference in the coldest churches I've ever been. It was an old Methodist church building in Dublin, Ireland. Uh, Bono and his wife came to most of the meetings. They were sitting in the back of the crowd, but... Uh, we had this great conference, but I didn't, I didn't know this story till just about five years ago when I was back in Dublin. Um, a pastor came up to me and he said, do you remember me? And he said, no. He says, well, I was associate pastor of that church that hosted you for that conference in 1995. Yeah, I said, I remember how cold it was. Uh, I mean, it was just, they had no central heating, nothing, you know, and it was just, man, you know. But anyway, he said, do you remember the prophecy you gave uh, the senior pastor myself? I said, no. He said, every night we were thinking that you were going to have a prophecy for our leadership team in the, in the conference, and he said, you never did. And every night as you were walking out the back door, as some people were taking the restaurants and things into the hotel, we would follow you out and say, do you have a prophecy for us? You kept saying, no, 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 no. And he said, the last night we were following you, and we said, don't you have a prophecy for us? And he said, he turned and looked and said, this is what the Lord says to you. You're not going to have a lack of finances for what God puts in your heart to do. Now, how many of you know there's pastors that would bribe you with $100,000 for a prophetic word like that? I mean, <laughs> sometimes you've got to spend money to get money. But anyway, but uh, they thought, wow, you know. Well, at that time, there were hardly any large Protestant church buildings in all of Dublin. And their church was growing and growing. They were stuck in a building that could only hold three or four hundred. 
And the only place they could find was uh, a little bit in the outskirts of Dublin, up on a hill. It was been a commercial area. It was not just buying it. It was going to take an awful lot of money for renovation. And they're saying, oh, Lord, we feel like you're into it. We just And then they remembered the word, you're not going to have any lack of money. And so they said, okay, Lord, we're going for it. And miraculously, money after money after money, and unexpected places and people came in. But it wasn't just them. They pioneered something. And within the next five years, five other churches did what they did. And, and they just saw a, a good move of evangelism in those churches over the years. And so that word, it, it's not something I say light. I would never say a prophetic word lightly anyway, but I want to encourage you. But what the Lord has for you as a church it's not just new ministries. It's not just new expressions of the kingdom to the community. God does give those prophetic strategies, obviously, but it's sharing life. And uh, let's all stand as we come to a close. I, I have this challenge for you that and I say this in love, that, uh, yeah, come on up if you want, that um, you, if you're married, your family, over the next week or so, take some time and pray and say, Lord, if there's some adjustments we need to make in our lifestyles so we could move deeper into the gift of hospitality, would you give us the wisdom and the boldness to do that? And again, I'm just trying to be straight up with you that God does not necessarily see success like we do. We're not going to get a lot of brownie points in heaven just for making more money than everybody else. And I'm not saying there aren't some people that are called. There are some people that are called to excel in that area because God gives them the gift of generosity, you know, and they're a vital part of the body of Christ. I'm not putting that down. I'm not saying you should not do your business or your career under the glory of God. But I'm just saying there's other priorities that God has that are vitally important. And some of you, and I'm just saying this prophetically right now, you're so strung out, you're so stressed out in your career. Part of the answer is not just getting a fresh touch from the Holy Spirit, but part of the answer for your strength to go the distance is the one anothering, getting involved with some people and letting them befriend you, having strength there. Because you know what a real friend is? A real friend is when you're going through an absolute crisis, you can wake them up in the middle of the night and they will say to you, you've got my ear and you've got my prayers. That's what a real friend is. And just like to pay off a house or even a car, you know, it takes time, you know, unless obviously you pay cash for it. You build up equity as in that house or that car over time. It takes equity to build in relationships. And ultimately, we need to build relationships that when you're going through the greatest warfare of temptation you've ever gone through and you feel like you're just a half a step from caving in, you can call that person and be meet together with them and they can pray with you and you can be vulnerable to them. You could be honest with them because you've developed equity in that relation. So, Father... I, in the name of Jesus, I thank you so much for this church. I, I love it every time I'm with this church, Father, worshiping. I'm so looking forward to tomorrow night. I love the ethos of this church. I, I love their heart for the homeless, for the downtrodden, Lord God. And I appreciate just the koinonia, the fellowship, the, the one anothering I've experienced in this church. But Father, I ask in the name of Jesus, would you put a burning fire to break out the gift of hospitality in this church on a whole nother level? And Father, I pray for people sitting or standing here right now this morning 
that outwardly everything looks cool and bubbly and effervescent, but inwardly you're dying because of isolation. I ask, Father, that there would be a breakthrough of Jonathan David heart-to-heart life-giving relationships. And Father, if some of us need to make some adjustments in our lifestyle to get serious about loving one another, would you give us the grace? Would you speak to us and give us the grace to do that? And I thank you in Jesus' name. Now, in closing, for my part anyway, I want you to look around the room and I want you to, in your mind, pick somebody out And as we dismiss, when we dismiss, walk up to that person and say, when are you having me over to your house? (laughs) 